environment. We were raised in a church or a church culture, or we were raised at a time when right and wrong was pretty distinguishable. And now those lines have been blurred in so many ways, but uh, for the majority of us, uh, we can remember times when truth was truth and lies were lies, when right was right and wrong was wrong. Sometimes, in the midst of all of that, some of us found, our, found ourselves in cultures where it wasn't about a relationship with Jesus as much as it was following the rules of the church. And we got immersed in legalism. And if we dotted all our I's and crossed all our T's and did all the right things and didn't do the wrong things, and we were spiritual. The problem with that thinking is it has nothing to do with the New Testament. The New Testament is about holiness, and holiness is not as much about rules as it is about a relationship. And when I have a holy relationship with God, then I hate what He hates, and I love what He loves, and I don't have to have a rule to tell me what that is because I'm in relationship with Him. When you come to the Beatitudes, you find principles that are for believers. I've had people say to me, you try to talk to them about being a Christian, they say, well, oh, I try to live by the golden rule, or I, I try to live by the teachings of Jesus. You cannot live by the teachings of Jesus unless you are a follower of Jesus Christ. These are principles and truths for believers only. And so I want you to go back with me to verse 1 of Matthew chapter 5, and let's read through, through verse 4. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When man tries to change, he normally tries to change the outside, the external his circumstances. But when God works to change, God works on the inside, the inner man, because the outer man is only truly changed when the inner man has been transformed. And when you read these statements of Jesus and when you see the reaction of the Pharisees and the scribes and the legalists of his time, you quickly discover that what Jesus said is true religion didn't sound at all like religion to the people he was talking to. The people that he was talking to thought that religion was wrapped up in 613 laws and traditions. Now try to remember that for a pop test. You can't do it. It's impossible to do. And Jesus said, no, it's not about your... 613 laws. I'm here to clear out the clutter. I'm here to define what godly character looks like. I'm here to tell you what true Christianity will look like. These are the things that will happen on the inside of you, and once they've happened on the inside of you, they're going to bear out in the way that you act and the way that you respond. And what Jesus does flies in the face of everything these Pharisees have been teaching. It would be enough to drive a Pharisee crazy to listen to Jesus. And Pharisees, even today, in 2001, are still threatened by true Jesus 
and His Word. It would drive the people of His time crazy, and yet Jesus said, you want to be happy? You want to be blessed? Here's how to be happy. Now, McDonald's says you can get that with getting a meal. And I know from experience there are a lot of parents that haven't been happy ordering Happy Meals. I mean, the last place we wanted to eat was McDonald's. Daddy, can we go through and get a Happy Meal? No! Doesn't make me happy. Let's go somewhere else. Well, they don't have as good of toys. I don't care. Ad agencies tell us, we can make you happy. You buy this product, you do this thing, we'll make you happy. Happiness in our society is often defined by what you wear and where you live and what you have and who you know. Jesus says that has nothing to do with happiness. In fact, Paul said in Philippians, I have learned that in whatever state I'm in to be content. I'm content with little and I'm content with much. That would not describe the average American to be content with little because we think contentment is with more than we've got. Now, your source of happiness determines whether or not it's true happiness. And happiness is neither good nor bad. It's what the source of your happiness is. And if the source of happiness is anything other than a pure relationship with Jesus Christ, then the source of your happiness can change or be taken away from you by circumstances, by time, by a decay in your health, by events in your life. It can be taken away from you. But what Jesus says, I'm going to bless you with the kind of life that no matter what happens to you, you can be blessed, you can be fulfilled, you can sense an abundance of life beyond the norm and the routine and the rut and just going to a job and going through life and making a living and dying and being buried. There is more to this life. I created you for more. I have saved you for more. Now find it in me. And so first thing he calls for is an awareness of sin. He calls for an awareness of sin. Now what Jesus often does when he makes us aware of things he gives us a paradox. Chesterton said that a paradox is truth standing on its head, calling for attention. And what Jesus gives us here is a paradox because we live in a society where sin is justified or where it is excused or ignored. We've lived with it so long. We, we have compromised for so long we have for so long watered down what the Word says about sin and we have watered down what Jesus had to pay for the price for our sin that we don't really believe sin's as bad a deal as it really is. One of the best books I have in my library was written by a medical doctor. And it's called Whatever Became of Sin. And he traces many people's illnesses back to unconfessed sin in their lives because they would not deal with sin things began to build up in their lives and they became unhealthy physically and he traced it back to being unhealthy spiritually. Now, what Jesus calls for here is a paradox from the way the world wants to deal with sin, ignore it, justify it, say mine's not as bad as somebody else's, and what he says about it in verse 3, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you were here for the last time, 
you remember that the poor in spirit are those who are recognizing that they are spiritually bankrupt. They have nothing to offer God. They cannot save themselves. This is an intellectual awareness. I come to an awareness in my mind that I have sinned against God, that I am a sinner, that I know in my head that I cannot do anything to save myself. Now, that's the intellectual side of repentance. Verse 4 is the emotional side of repentance. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. My emotional response to my awareness of my bankruptcy is I mourn over where I am. I'm grieved over where I am. The truth behind this is that nobody can confess I am a sinner against a holy God with a cold heart. It's not just acknowledging words back to somebody, yes, I know I'm a sinner. At some point, there's an awareness of what that sin has done to God and has done to me, and I react to it with mourning. David grieved over his sin in Psalm 51. Jeremiah said the problem with the people of Israel was they had no longer been able to blush over their sin. And so what Jesus is doing is he's trying to get our attention to tell us there is a right response to sin in our lives. And he's trying to give us God's perspective on this sin. Now here's what happens to us. We begin to lower the standard of what sin is. And we define sin this way. Sin is something that you do that I don't do that I don't approve of. We no longer define sin by what God's Word says sin is. Because, you see, we define sin by what somebody does that I don't do that I don't approve of. So if somebody's out there living in physical sin, we call them a sinner. But Jesus says to those of us who know God, without faith it's sin. You can't please God if you don't walk by faith. Whatever is not of faith is sin. So every time I try to figure it out, I try to work it out, I try to do it on my terms, I try to serve God my way, I have in fact sinned against God by trying to help God do something I know I can't help Him do. By trying to do something for Him that I cannot do for Him, that He has to do through me. And so notice the word that Jesus uses here. He says, blessed are those who mourn. This is the strongest word possible in the Greek for grief. And here's what it means. It means a grief that consumes you and cannot be hidden. A grief that consumes you and cannot be hidden. It's a grief that manifests itself externally. Once the poor in spirit recognize that they are sinners, then they mourn and confess and grieve over their spiritual condition. Now, I want to give you an example of that in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Turn, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I want you to see Paul's testimony in 1 Timothy 1 about what happened when he realized that he was a sinner. Now, Paul is a logical person. He's a type A person. He's a logical person. He's a reasoning person. But Paul went through this poor in spirit and went through this mourning when he realized what his sin had done to God. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and beginning in verse 12. 
I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, you see, Paul's saying, this is where I was. This was my spiritual condition. This was where I stood before God. I, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor, but I was shown mercy, in verse 14, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. More than abundant for what? All of his blasphemy, all of his persecuting, all of his aggressiveness against the cause of the gospel. He says, it was more abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. You see, God comes in and he says, Paul, this is what you are. And Paul says, I know, I know, I know. I know what I am. And then Paul says, in the middle of admitting that, I got two things. I got mercy and grace. Now, isn't that what everybody needs? Mercy and grace. Every lost person needs mercy and grace. Every Christian, once he realizes that there's sin in his life, needs mercy and grace. And Paul says, I didn't try to hide it. I didn't try to cover up. I did not try to pretend. I knew who I was. I knew what I was doing. I recognized it. God convicted me of it. And the minute he convicted me and the minute I admitted it, I got two things I desperately needed, mercy and grace. God's unmerited favor. God didn't do to me what he could have done to me. That's mercy. And God gave me what I didn't deserve. That's grace. And look at verse 15. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Now, I want to tell you, Paul was easy to admit that we're not. I, I doubt if we'd ever get into a, a challenge contest for the first one to stand up in any church service and say, I'm the worst sinner in this room. If Paul had been in a preacher's conference, a Southern Baptist pastor's conference, and they would have opened the floor for discussion, Paul would have been the first one to the microphone and said, I know all you guys are great. I know you got great churches. I know you preach to big crowds. But I want to tell you something. I got one thing to say to you. I'm the worst sinner in the bunch. Well, we'd never ask him to come to a Bible conference at our church because we want positive confession. Paul says, I'm the foremost of all, yet... Now notice what happens when you get honest with God. Yet for this reason I found mercy. What reason? I'm the worst sinner. The worse you realize your sin is, the more you realize you need mercy. I'm the worst sinner. And so I found mercy so that in me as the foremost of all sinners, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. What Paul is saying is simply this. When people realize that God could save me, they realize that God could save anybody. But I had to admit that I was a sinner. I had to admit that I wasn't walking with God. I had to admit my desperate need for him. And in the middle of that, Paul never justifies himself. He never exalts himself. You never see Paul thumping his chest and talking about how great he is. Paul says, among whom I am the foremost, the chief of sinners. He understood God's comfort. For this reason, I found mercy. Now, what happened to Paul? Paul acknowledged, I'm poor in spirit. He grieved over his sin, and God changed his life. And he never got over it. 
One of the things that happens to us in the church today is we get saved and get over it. We forget what it was like to be lost. Some of us have been saved so long that we think we're better than lost people. The only thing difference between us and a lost person is that we have already found grace and mercy and they haven't yet. That's all that's different. I'm not any better than the guy who was slapped drunk last night except for the grace of God. I'm not any better than the woman that slept with three men last night except for the grace of God. It is only through His grace and mercy meeting me at the point of my awareness of sin that I came to understand that God had a better plan for my life that I wasn't perfect, that I couldn't be perfect, that I needed to throw myself on the altar of His grace and on the altar of His mercy. Secondly, Jesus calls us to a radical awareness of the principle of sin. He's saying here, blessed are those who do not rationalize sin, who refuse to rationalize sin. You see, sin is not just doing something wrong. Sin is also thinking something wrong which is why Jesus keeps going back and saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you. It's not just doing, it's also thinking. Now, you can have a clear complexion and have a dirty heart. Just because we clean up on the outside doesn't mean that we are without fault and without sin. And so Jesus comes to give us a radical awareness of this, and I want to ask you to go with me to two passages of Scripture. One is found in Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. I alluded to this, I think, last night, uh, last Sunday night. Romans chapter 7, and then we'll go to Colossians chapter 2. Romans 7. Paul began to understand that God knew the real deal on him that God could see through the facade of his religion and his religious training, that God could see through the front that he had put up, that God could see through all the religious words that he was speaking, and that God could see the heart of Saul, who became Paul. Romans 7 and verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would have not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. As we talked about last week, Paul said, you know, I I haven't done this, and I haven't done that, and I haven't done this, and I haven't done that, and he gets down to covet, and covet gets him. Because Paul knows he's wanted something somebody else had or he wanted somebody that he couldn't get. There's been something out there before him that he thought, if I could have that, I could be satisfied. By the way, that's coveting. If I could have that or have this or have her or have him or live here or live there or go there or go here, if, if I could just get something I don't have, I would be complete. That's coveting. That means if that thought has ever entered our mind, we are a lawbreaker and we are a sinner and we cannot save ourselves and we're doomed to spend eternity in hell unless somebody comes in and forgives us of that coveting. 
because we can't go back and do enough non-coveting to make up for the act of coveting that we did. And so Paul says, I, I was doing great, and then I got nailed on coveting. And I realized that this, this seized the opportunity afforded by the commandment, and it showed me all the places where I was in error. Now, turn to Colossians chapter 2. And I want to read this out of the Living Bible, Colossians 2, 20, and I want you to follow along in what translation you have. But I want to read it out of the Living because it, it's very clear here what he's saying. That's why you ought to, as Layman Strauss would say, be very be at home with one translation but visit some other ones because sometimes you see some things in other translations that jump out at you. Colossians 2.20, Since you died, as it were, with Christ, and this has set you free from following the world's ideas of how to be saved by doing good and obeying various rules. That's what Paul says. The world's idea is you get saved and you get to heaven by doing good and by following rules. Why do you keep right on following them anyway, still bound by such rules as not eating, tasting, or touching certain foods? Verse 22, such rules are human teachings for food was made to be eaten and used up and the Lord knows we've all eaten and used up a lot of it. Verse 23, these rules may seem good for rules of this kind require strong devotion and are humiliating and hard on the body but they have no effect when it comes to conquering a person's evil thoughts and desires they only make him proud. You will never see anybody strut more than a legalist. Because a legalist gets arrogant and proud about keeping rules. And Paul says that if you're a legalist and you think you get saved by keeping rules, you've missed what the Scriptures teach about how to be saved. You are not saved by keeping rules. You can't keep all of them. That's what we saw in Romans chapter 7. And since you can't keep all of them, why are you so obsessed with keeping these rules? It's about admitting that I'm a sinner. You cannot justify yourself by keeping rules. God condemns you by those rules. And so he comes and he says, this morning is to be an individual morning. And it's a morning of our spiritual condition. The Chicago Sun-Times, uh, Sun-Tribune, did an article a, a, year, a few years back called There's One Thing Worse Than Sin. And they did an article on two members of the House of Representatives who had been censured by the United States House of Representatives. One, Representative Crane, the other one, Representative Studs. Representative Crane had had an immoral relationship with a 17-year-old female page in the house. Representative Studs had had an immoral relationship with a 17-year-old male page in the house. Both were censured. Now, here's the difference in the story. When Crane was censured, he stood before the House of Representatives and he said, I have broken the laws of God and man. And he stayed to vote for his own censure. Stud said, I'm a homosexual and my relationship was mutual and voluntary and I will not apologize for it and stayed to vote that he was present to watch who voted against him. 
This is what a secular newspaper said about those proceedings. There is one thing worse than sin, and that is the denial of sin which makes forgiveness impossible. You understand that? Two men committed sin. They committed wrong. One said, I've broken God's law. The other said, I can do whatever I want to do. One found forgiveness even in the midst of his censure. The other one has no forgiveness because he's denied that he sinned. Now, here's what God's trying to do with us. He's trying to make us realize that our sin has grieved God. In fact, Martin Luther in his 95 thesis that he tacked on the Wittenberg door, the number one of those 95 is that our entire life is to be one of continuous repentance. You know what our problem is? We laugh about things we ought to be crying about and we cry about things we ought to be laughing about. We find humor in the taking of God's name in vain. We find humor in an off-color joke. We find humor in things that ought to be grieving us. And so there's a, a response to sin. Now look at, he calls for a radical response and I want you to read Matthew 5, 27. Drop down to Matthew 5, 27. Oftentimes in the Sermon on the Mount, you will find Jesus stating the principle in one of the verses in the Beatitudes, but then he picks up the application of it further on in the Sermon on the Mount. There's an application here, or blessed are those who mourn. 5.27, and I want to read this out of the message. You know the next commandment pretty well. Don't go to bed with another spouse, but don't think you've preserved your virtue simply by staying out of bed. Your heart can be corrupted by lust even quicker than your body. Those leering looks you think nobody notices, they also corrupt. Let's not pretend, I love the way that, that Eugene Peterson puts this, let's not pretend that this is easier than it really is. If you want to live a morally pure life, here's what you have to do. You have to blind your right eye the moment you catch it in a lustful leer. Verse 30, better to lose one of the parts of your body than the whole of your body to go to hell. What Jesus is doing in Matthew 5, 27 through 30 is he is giving the application of Matthew 5, 4. He's saying that you need to realize that there are consequences to sin and that God wants you to view sin very seriously. That if there's lust, poke your eye out. Now what he's saying is God wants you to understand something. We just don't get flippant about this. Society gets flippant about sin. But God takes sin seriously. And he wants us to take that sin just as seriously. Sin is serious, so I'm going to deal with it seriously. Some people will deny sin. Some people will refuse to admit that they are sinners. But David said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He repented before God. He confessed his sin. He realized what sin had done to him. The prodigal son woke up in the, in the uh, pig pen and came to his senses and he said, there are servants living better than I am. I'll get up and go to my father's house. He came to his senses. He realized his sin. He realized he had squandered his life, squandered his inheritance, and he came before his father asking for mercy. What Jesus is trying to say here is we need to be mournful about our pride and our self-justification about what we do. 
or comparing ourselves to other people. Now, look at what he does lastly. He calls us to embrace the results. What happens? What happens if I recognize I'm spiritually bankrupt, I go before God and in my heart is grieved and broken because I've recognized my bankruptcy before God, that I cannot save myself, that I cannot cleanse myself, I can't forgive myself, and I go before God and say, God, I'm a sinner. I'm the chief of all. I'm the worst one. There's nobody in this room that's any greater sinner than I am. I'm the worst, Lord. What is God going to do? Say, well, it's about time you admitted it. It's not what he says here. He says, for they shall be comforted. Now, if your God is a God that once you acknowledge sin keeps kicking you in the seat of the pants, you've got the wrong God. Because when God forgives, He comforts. Now, your conscience may continue to bother you or the consequences of your sin may continue to affect you, but I want you to understand something. When we get wholly desperate before God for God to deal with our sin and for us to acknowledge our sin, God says, I'm going to come down and to all those who mourn, they will be comforted. They'll not only be delivered from the penalty of sin, they'll be delivered from the power of sin and I'm going to comfort them. Notice that they is emphatic. It's emphatic in the Greek. It is an individual promise. God doesn't say, I'm going to come up and pat you on the shoulder and go, well, God bless you. I'm glad you're doing better. He's not going to just hug you and say, oh, it's going to be all right. That's not the kind of comfort God gives. He says, they shall be immediately. God's not going to wait and see if you've mourned enough. Once you've reached the point of this kind of mourning, he says, I'm going to come to all those who want to bless life, to all those who acknowledge the things that are keeping them from having a blessed life, to all those who will confess the things that have hindered them from having a blessed life, and the minute they do it, they shall be comforted. Now, we've got to get a handle on this word comforted. And I, I want you to take some notes here because this is important for you to understand what it means when God comforts us. It is a, it's an inexhaustible word. It is the same word used for the Holy Spirit in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2. It is a word advocate. Advocate. Here are some ways it is used. It is used to summon a tutor or a helper or a counselor or a witness to come alongside you. It is used, one way the word is used is to cheer another on in the midst of their conflict. What he says is, when I acknowledge my sin, God comes alongside me and he cheers me on in the midst of my conflict. In all the pain, in all the problems, in all the sorrow, the Holy Spirit comes alongside and says, I'm with you. I'm with you on this one. I see your heart. I know what you sense. I know what you know. I know it too. And I want you to know I'm standing here with you. I want to tell you something, folks. You can go through hell if you know God's in it with you. But you can't walk a day without knowing he's with, it, with you in it. He's one that comes alongside. The Latin word means 
to bring strength together. I love what the Latin means. The Latin word for comfort means that God brings all the strength that is available from the power of the Holy Spirit and brings it all together in you. In you. Not in the world. In you. God brings His strength of the power of the Holy Spirit and He puts it inside you. God does not walk around with a club trying to wrap you on the wrist God walks around waiting for you to acknowledge that you're a sinner because you've understood what He's done for you in Christ Jesus so that He can come alongside you and love you and comfort you and say, I know, I died for that sin. Now let's move past it. Let's go on from here. Let's not wallow in it. He did not say, if you mourn, when you're miserable enough, I might talk to you about it. He said, when you mourn, I will comfort you. Here's what it means. It means that God is going to come alongside and be your ally, not your adversary. When I mourn about my sin, when I grieve about my sin, then, the, then God sends the advocates, another term for lawyer. God sends a heavenly lawyer to stand by my side and to plead my case on my behalf. I'm not righteous. I'm not worthy. I'm not deserving. And my advocate comes alongside me and says, you're right, you're not. But there's one who will stand with you who is. Here's what I want to ask you to do. Mark's going to sing a song, and I want you to listen to the words of this song, and then we're going to finish up the rest of this sermon. But as he comes to sing this song, I, I want to ask you to just bow your head, block out. Mark talked earlier about blocking out the stuff around you. I want to ask you to block out what's going on around you, and I want you to hear the words of this song to your heart, not to your wife, not to your kids, not to your neighbor, not to the people around you. This is for you. This is God's invitation to you today. And then after he's finished, we'll come back and finish up the last part of the message.
the power of His blood, everything was done so you would come. The power of the Word and the power of His blood, everything was done so you would come. you come, how's it going to comfort you? Three ways. Number one, He'll comfort you with the Spirit. Psalms 30 and verse 5 says, His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. He will comfort you with His Spirit. He'll come alongside you. Secondly, He'll comfort you with the Scriptures. John 6.63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. And finally, the saints will comfort you. You'll find when you get honest about your sin that you'll meet some people that are honest about theirs. Just like those men and women this past week in Texas A. Some of them didn't even know each other. They just happened to be sitting by somebody at the time. And they found that they would run into people that had the same struggles and the same problems and the same hurts and the same anxieties. You are not alone in this. And God can comfort you. I want to ask you a simple question. Have you ever come to the point in your life where you've acknowledged that you were spiritually bankrupt before God. You could not save yourself. It wasn't in being baptized. It wasn't in going to church and keeping rules. But you've been bankrupt before God. And you've been grieved before God over what you did to Jesus on the cross because it was your sin. It was my sin that put Jesus on that cross. Have you ever just knelt before him and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner? I'm the chief of all sinners. I don't know what everybody else in this room has done, but I know that my sin puts you on the cross. I know that my sin has broken your heart. I know that my sin has blocked my vision of you. I know that my sin has hindered my walk with you. Not anybody else. It's me. God, I come before you, and if you will do that, I promise you that in the next 60 seconds, the Holy Spirit, at the time it comes out of your mouth, will come to you and comfort you and say, I'm here. 